good singing. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing indeed. I said in the early service that though I haven't selected songs for If and When God Calls Me Home, Nearer, Still Nearer is one of the songs that I would like to have sung because in truth, when you pass from this life into the next, you've drawn nearer to God most instantly. And for the rest of eternity, the joy of it for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior is that we will draw ever nearer and nearer and nearer to Him. And so it is a wonderful hymn. Thank you for singing it. When you sing it acapulco like that, you don't feel comfortable where you're seated going, (laughs) but it sounded wonderful up here. It was very encouraging uh, and very, very glad to hear it. For some of you, you should probably sing out even louder. We had Ken and Lydia over on Monday night, and I had heard walking past them that they could sing, and Lydia said, it wasn't me, it must have been Ken you heard singing. When we were walked up last Sunday, I'd forgotten something, had to go get it, uh, but the truth is all of you sound wonderful when you sing. Singing is a, a, a process of those who are responding to a God that loves them and has saved them from their sins and given to them eternal life. So thank you for doing that. Genesis chapter 6 is where we are this morning. We're continuing continuing in our walking series as we will be all throughout the year. And we begin this morning looking at three weeks on Noah. Noah standing there with his hammer ready to build his ark. Uh, He was ready to drive one of those wooden pegs through and begin that process of building. We will look this morning in particular at Noah's walk with God at the fact that he found grace. Grace is found is the title of the message. And so as we look into the life of Noah, we will see this week his, the grace that he found. Next week, we'll see the faith that he demonstrated. And then in the final week, we will see the godliness or the life that God expects from us. And what happens when we fail? That, that is a true statement. Noah failed in his latter years, but God still loved him and his grace was still good and resting upon him. Genesis chapter number 6, look with me in verse number 8. The Bible says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Father, this morning as we come to you, I pray that we would understand and know this element of Noah's life, what it means that he found grace, and what it means for us as grace finds us. I pray that you'll help us to know and do the truth, that we would walk according to your word. I pray that we would understand each of these men and women that we will study throughout this year made conscious choices. That's what it boils down to. That's the key. Do I make a conscious choice to walk with God? I pray that we would be like Noah. Bless in this hour, may your spirit guard and guide my thoughts and words, and may the spirit open the hearts of these who are hearers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What would it be like to be the only family that believed in God? By the way, I don't mean that figuratively. Today, we say, oh, pastor, I feel like I'm the only one trying to do right in this world. And then you come into church and you find 110, 120 other families on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night and go, well, maybe not the only family. I mean this in the very literal sense. If you were the only family that wanted to do what was right, would you do it? Talk about peer pressure. Talk about an example. Well, it just feels like everybody at my school is Really? Everybody? I mean, Noah could say that. Can you really say that? Well, everybody in my workplace is corrupt. Are are they really as corrupt as the day of Noah? And the answer is most definitely not. Imagine Noah's life. Imagine his existence. Imagine his place. Every kid that his kid played with was devilish. Wicked. In every possible way, they did all that was wrong and evil. Now, your kids may have some bad friends, but are they all wicked and perpetually evil? That's actually God's description of them in the first seven verses that we'll see in just a moment. 
Imagine every person at the grocery store was looking to cheat you or perhaps even murder you. How would you shop at Kroger if that's what you actually lived in? I mean, we wouldn't just be conceal carrying. We'd conceal carry. We'd open carry. We might bazooka carry. I mean, we might drive with a tank to the grocery store to keep ourselves safe. This was the world. It literally says, God says there were only eight righteous souls in the book of 1 Peter. So when we read the story of Noah, boy, it brings a lot of context. It brings a lot of help for us in this day. Because I can tell you that in this church, there are a lot of families who may not be perfect, but they are trying to do right by the word of God, and they are trying to walk with God. Noah was the only one in his generation that did that. Those are the words we just read. Imagine every business deal that you did was done with a counterpart who was shady and looking to give you the short end of the stick. Some of you say, you know, when I go to a used car dealer, I'm not even saying that. I mean in everything. We don't live in those days. It may feel like it sometimes as we look out at the world, as we watch the news, as we consume our environment around us. But I can tell you as a pastor, our days are far better than the days of Noah. Now, Jesus warns us there's a day coming that will be like the days of Noah. But that day will be in that great tribulation time. As we understand this then, knowing that every interaction was going to be someone who was only doing evil continually, as the Bible says, had to be difficult on Noah. And so we come to him in a three-week study to find what we can be like and the kind of people we ought to be with the grace of God in our lives as well. The great theological question, by the way, when you come to verse number 8 of Genesis 6 is this. Did grace find Noah or did Noah find grace? It's a great question, isn't it? It kind of makes you think. It's one of those deep theological questions. You say, are you going to answer that for us this morning? Yes, here's how I'm going to answer it. Yes. Grace found him and he found grace. That's the same way it is for us in salvation. The grace of God is available to us to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, but it takes us recognizing what the grace of God is and by faith receiving it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. This morning, as we begin our journey into the life of Noah and understanding him, we should note that this week we will study his grace, next week we will study his faith, and the final week we will study the resulting life that God desires from us or intends for us from those two elements. Grace is first seen in our notes this morning against the godless backdrop. Look in the Bible with me at verses 1 through 7, and we'll read together and get a picture of what the godless backdrop of Noah's day was like. Here's what the Bible says, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. You might underline that word flesh there. It's the first true sense of its use in the Bible, and it will set forward an understanding. It is not what we're preaching on today, but understand, grace comes in spite of our flesh. Grace is ours in spite of the wickedness of the world and their flesh. He says, yet his days shall be 120 years. I think it's always interesting when I read that verse, Moses is the one recording this under inspiration of God through oral tradition and through revealed uh, knowledge from God. He himself lived to be 120. I think specifically verse 3 is telling us that it's going to be 120 years from this proclamation until they are cut off. That's what I personally believe. And that's an interesting truth in that because it's going to set forward how long Noah had to build, what his life was like, what all of the events or the markers were given to us. In verse 4, it says, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which are of old men of renown. You ever wonder where the Romans and the Greeks got their mythology from? These are the old mighty men of renown. These were legendary people. Where, Where did those legends come from? 
Well, in Genesis chapter 10, as the table of nations dispersed out from the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they took stories of pre-Diluvian people, pre-Diluvian individuals who were of great importance in that world. And God says, hey, we remember those stories, but those stories may have no bearing because that was them and this is us. There is a focus on the grace of God and what results from God's grace in our lives. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The exclusive and perpetual thought of their heart was wickedness or evil, that which is opposed to God. And the result is found in verse 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Notice the second statement, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. It is then and only then you find the transitional word, but. In other words, this is the backdrop that grace comes into. This is the backdrop. They had rejected God, but there was one who had received or obeyed, followed God. And the grace of God could be found in that man's life against that backdrop. Grace means unlimited mercy. It means undeserved favor. It means unmerited love. It tells us then, in the use of this word grace, that there was nothing that Noah did that made him deserve God's rescue, but God recognized the faith in this man and rescued him. The generation of Noah was not a generation of goodness. There was nothing lovely about them. God is gracious even when 99.99 with 11 more 9% of the world is evil. You say, well, where do you come up with that number? Most biblical archaeologists, most biblical or theological studiers of, of anthropology will tell you that mankind as a race probably peaked at 10 to 12 million, possibly as high as 16 billion, I, I said million, 10 billion to 12 billion, possibly 16 billion, before the flood. Stop and think that through. We have 8 billion people alive today. And if you were the only family out of 8 billion people that did right, would you still do it? This is the backdrop. Again, it's very easy for us to kind of make an excuse, pander to our flesh, and say, well, man, everybody's doing it, so it's okay for me to watch. It's okay for me to listen to. It's okay for me to talk... And the answer is, no, even if everybody else is doing it. And it was quite literally true for Noah. Even if everyone else is doing it, you shouldn't. At least one of you agrees with me. It's only getting worse from here. These people were the very literal definition of Romans chapter 3 when God says, there's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. This is who these people were, and we are increasingly becoming that kind of a world, but we're not there yet. And so even if we come to the stature and the fullness of the evil of Noah's day, it is still right for you as a believer and your family as a home to walk with God. That's the story of Noah. This is the backdrop into which grace comes and is found. We find letter A in our notes then, the godless backdrop shows us that God is grieved over sin. It grieves Him. We could literally say it this way, God causes, or sin, excuse me, causes God great distress. When I say that, some might think in their heart, does that mean I can hurt God by sinning? What I mean is that God knows the perfection of His own existence. This is where the grief comes from. He knows the glory and the splendor that is ours free from sin, yet He, as a sovereign God, watches and allows us in our free will to choose to sin. And it is those choices, it is that choice each moment that grieves God. I put in your notes this. The offensiveness of Adam's first sin in his state of innocence and perfection 
is still the grief that God knows when you or I sin today. Stop and think that thought through. When Adam, in his perfection in the garden, chose to sin, it was the first sin, and it was one of the greatest sins, because in perfection, in innocence, in the fullness of God's glory, Adam chose still to depart. Yet that sin is no different than any sin you commit before God. It grieves him at his heart, the Bible just told us. This is the godless backdrop that we must understand. God hates sin. And until you start hating sin like God hates sin, you're not going to be walking with him as you ought to be walking with him. Pastor, I feel like you're down on us today. No, no, I'm just informing you today. My job is to instruct in righteousness. I'm to teach you the truth so that the truth itself can make you free. That thought is what repented the heart of the Lord. It's what grieved him. By the way, for us who have received God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, we too today can grieve God. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 4 and verse 30. He warns the Ephesians, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. In other words, don't grieve the heart of God by actively engaging in open sin, in known sin, in any sin. God's grace is not something that we are to treat lightly. This is the very heart of what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. He said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is, God forbid! No! Stop it! He goes on in Romans 6 to tell us that that's why the baptismal process is so important. We are openly saying to others, we are burying ourselves with Christ in death. I'm dead to sin, but when I'm resurrected or come back out of that water, I am alive unto Christ. I walk in newness of life. The godless backdrop shows us that God himself is grieved. He's troubled over us. And you say, well, why doesn't he just come in and stop us from sinning? He's God. It would make him not God to do that. His sovereignty says, no, I'm going to let you freely choose to walk with me or not. There are rewards, the Bible says, for those who diligently seek me. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But if you don't want to walk with him, then you are not going to know and experience the fullness of the grace that he has for you. The godless backdrop and the notation of it in the life of Noah that he... It was everyone else doing wrong, but not Noah. Oh, that ought to be the testimony of us. It ought to be the testimony of every home. It ought to be the reason every parent makes their child do what is right, because we are training and teaching them that they too ought to grow up and walk in the grace of Almighty God, in the life that He has for us. God's grace is not something we treat lightly. The generation up to and including Noah's, according to this passage, had done just that. They had treated the grace of God lightly. Well, he didn't destroy Adam, so he must be okay with our sin. Oh, no. He had expelled Adam, and Adam in dying died. The decay and the destruction was set upon him. This morning, if you are in sin, it grieves God that you choose to depart from him. Understand that. The godless backdrop is not just that God is grieved over sin, but let her be, God is gracious to save. Hallelujah. Here's the good news. I feel like sometimes in a message, I'm Paul Harvey. If you remember him from the old days, he would tell you the first part of the story and then go tell you about some kind of product that he was selling. And he would come back from that and say, now for the rest of the story, right? Well, here's the rest. The rest of the message is good, but you've got to understand the bad. And the bad is bad, but the good is good. God is gracious to save. The Bible says Noah found himself as the sole possessor of belief in God. Think of that for a moment. He was the only one who believed what he believed. Do you know what that would get him today? Shadow banned, <laughs> blocked by the social medias. Well, I can't believe this nut job believes that. We need to isolate and eliminate him from society. That's what Noah experienced. There is nothing new under the sun. And if you're going to be one that lives by and walks in the grace of God as Noah did, then you too are going to be ostracized and isolated in our present world. He was the only one who trusted in the living God. 
The Bible tells us in verse number nine that he was a just man. That just, the word just there means he, had right, he was right in his conduct. It also says that he was a perfect man in his generations. It means he was blameless in his character. So both outwardly and inwardly, this man was one who truly and earnestly walked with God. Now, let me say this when I say that God is gracious to save. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet we read in this story that none came to repentance except for Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. Those eight souls, Peter writes in 1 Peter, were the only ones that through the way of the ark went from the old life to the new. They're the only ones who were saved. God's desire is for man to willingly choose to obey and follow Him. That's what it means to walk with Him, to openly and freely choose to do what's right. A lot of times, especially as young people grow up, it's, well, let me see as like water goes, we go flowing to the path of least resistance. And we go and make choices and say, well, until I get in trouble, even as adults we do this, until I get in trouble, I'm just going to go to the edge until I get caught and then fall off that edge. Well, I'm sorry, a just man falls seven times, rises up again, and I'm going to get back right with God. That is the right process if that happens. But what God desires for those that walk with him is to never get close to the edge to begin with. To stay far from it and just walk in just character conduct and in a perfect or blameless character before him. That is God's desire. By the way, man's desire is opposed to that. Hey, I just want to make myself happy. I just want to do what pleases me. I just want to walk after my own things. Can I say if that's the way you're operating or acting, you're not walking in the grace of God? Well, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Yes, that's absolutely true. But you're not walking with God in His grace. Now, that's the lesson from Noah in his character today. As we study him in his life, we have to understand the first thing noted of him is that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Or as God observed him, he observed goodness in Noah or faith in Noah. That's what goodness is in us. We, by our idemic nature, our fallen nature, turn from God and we choose our flesh. It is rejecting the relationship with God that results in ultimate rejection by God. As I said, God is not willing that any should perish. He is long-suffering, the Bible says, to usward, especially them that believe. The perpetual evil of Noah's world led to their destruction. That is the godless backdrop. And into that shines a little light. I remember as a child from Fairfax, Virginia, the 5th, 6th, 7th grade years of my life, they would always make us take trips to Luray Caverns. My wife just smiled. That's in her neck of the woods out in the Shenandoah Valley. It's a lot smaller than Mammoth Caves, but it was a cave, and I am claustrophobic, and I hate that, and I hated the dark, and they would always lead you in as the school group with your teachers, trusting all the while that you would come into that cave, and you would go out the other side okay, and in the middle of it, you would get with stalactites and stalagmites, and one's from the ceiling, one's from the floor, that's about all I know on that. You would get in the middle of that room, and the guide would do this, all right, Johnny, turn them off. And the whole room would go pitch black and you could do this and you couldn't see your hand. And the whole time in my heart, I was like, turn it on, 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 turn it on. And the guide would eventually take his flashlight and go. And you would see one little light. And you know what inevitably happened? All the kids started doing this together because they wanted to get near that light. Right. That is Noah in his day. He exercised genuine belief, number two in our outlines, towards God. That was the little light. We're seeing it as a kid, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That's Noah. In the face of all of this is Noah. By the way, when it's that pitch black in Luray Cavern, And that flashlight comes on, and they let you sit there for a minute so your eyes adjust to the dark. And that light comes on. What happens to your eyes? Oh, oh, man. 
And then they slowly bring the lights of the cave back up as you walk back out the stairs through their gift shop, which I never bought anything because you just terrified me half to death. But they walk you up through the gift shop and out in the sunlight. They don't just lead you around the corner and have the sunshine. You'd go blind. But that light, man, it is bright. And then if the guide outside, I used to ask him this, the second and third year we went, I'm like, hey, turn your flashlight on out here. Not because I was going to use it as a preaching example, but because I was one of those weird kids and thought, man, that's the brightest thing I've ever seen. Can I see how bright it is? And he turned it on outside and you couldn't hardly see it because there was a sun. This is Noah in his day. This is what genuine belief does. It makes our light shine. Can you imagine how bright Noah's light burned when everyone else, potentially 16 billion other people, didn't want anything to do with God? I mean, you are isolated. That is a dark cave. And there's one light. One person that's willing to do what's right. The Bible tells us in verse number 9 that Noah made a conscious choice to walk with God. Walking with God is not something that accidentally happens for a believer in Jesus Christ. It is not passive. Rather, it is active. It is an active, conscious choice on our part. No one ever said, oops, I did what was right by God. No, you have to know what thus saith the Lord, and you have to do what thus saith the Lord. No one accidentally does right. And that's the problem for so many Christians in our modern age. They come to church on a Sunday morning and say, I guess I'm okay with God. And the question is, I don't know, are you? Well, I don't know. Well, what are your choices this week? Oh, man, you know, <laughs> this is a bad week to ask me that, Kyle. I knew you were going to, you know, that, this is just a bad week. Well, what was the last month? We well, you know it's just been a bad, bad month. You know, it, other than this month, it was a good month. Well, how about the last year? We well, you know it's been a really bad year on the whole. And we go down and down and down. And at the end of the day, we realize I'm making no conscious choices to walk with God. I'm making no decisions that are right by Him. Are you really a light in that situation? Are you exercising genuine belief? What grace, by the way, did Noah believe in concerning God? What was his belief in? Well, letter A, it was in the Adamic promise. Here in chapter 6, if you look down in verse 18, the Bible says this, God speaking to him, he says, But with thee will I establish my covenant. Pause for a second. What covenant? I mean, it's his covenant. What's a God's grace that it would be upon us, so he's going to be gracious. But what was the promise? He goes on and says this, that thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy son's wives with thee. In other words, I'm going to make sure that the promise I made to Adam is fulfilled in you. Well, what was the promise that he made? It was a fourfold promise of grace in the garden after the fall to Adam. Here's the first thought, and I think I put these in your notes. I may not have. You can write them down. Here's the first thought from Genesis chapter number three. God sought Adam. Adam did not seek God. The first gracious part of God's promise to Adam was, I will seek you. Jesus said it this way in the Gospels. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Why? That you might have life. The choosing of God is to come to sinful man. When Adam sinned, the Bible says he made his own clothes of righteousness and he hid himself from the presence of God. Yet God's voice came walking in the cool of the morning. We read this last week as we talked about the walking with God concept. And we find that that gracious promise is that God would come to man. He would provide the way of salvation. Man can't provide his own way of salvation. The second is that God clothed Adam. Hey, listen. You can't do anything, Adam. Nothing's going to make you right before me, but here is the way you're right before me. An animal's blood must be sacrificed. Adam didn't understand that, by the way, but he accepted that. Why? Because it was God's gracious act to restore him. It was God's gracious act to bring him into relationship once again with him, or at least to assuage or solve the problem with sin. The third is that God removed Adam from Eden. And you might say, removing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, that doesn't seem very gracious. And the answer is, oh yes, it would have been hell on earth if they had lived forever in their sinful state. It was of God's grace that he said, no, you can't live in this condition. You will be perpetually dying and dead and wicked and will have no way to be in relationship with me. I must take you out of my presence and perfection because sin cannot be in my presence for it is not part of my perfection. And fourth, we find the gracious promise in Adam that Noah was trusting in, believing in, 
is that there was a Savior in the seed, a Savior in the line. Noah, in the line of Seth to Enoch to himself, believed that God was gracious and thus trusted in the grace of God as God had revealed it to that point to Adam. The world of man, by the way, even in Noah's day until our own, divides into two groups if they even believe in a higher power. Here are the two groups. There is two groups, those that believe in a higher power and those that don't. But those that do, these are the two views of who the God of heaven is. One group, the group that I'm a part of, believes that God is good and that he's gracious and that he's forgiving. The other group believes God to be angry, vengeful, and full of wrath. And you say, man, you've got a lot of gumption to preach that because he's about to destroy the whole world. Yes, but he's been gracious this whole time. He's been good and waiting and wanting and patient. By the way, it's been almost 1,600 years from Adam's fall in the garden to the flood. By the way, if we were to go back in history, that takes us to 400 A.D. A lot has gone on in the world in the last 1,600 years. That is the window of time from when Adam fell, all of the lineage is traced out, to when the flood happens. It's roughly 1,600 years. Here's the point. That is a lot of time for God to say, you are wicked continually, but I'm going to be gracious, I'm going to be gracious, I'm going to be gracious, because I gave my word to Adam that through his line there would be a seed, there would be a Savior. In the curse and in the fall, God said to Eve that that seed that would be born of her, that child that would come from her, would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. That's what they hoped in. That's what they believed, that God's grace would sustain and accomplish what His Word promised. I believe God is gracious. I believe God wants to forgive. This does not mean that I don't believe God will exercise vengeance and wrath. This story is going to tell us. There is a point where His grace is exhausted in dealing with us, or those who have received His grace will be taken out so that He can execute judgment on the earth. That is an absolutely true statement, and it's going to be true in our generation as well. There is going to be judgment that comes. For all that breathe in the same time and space that we do, And for all those that live beyond us, there is a day where God's grace will be exhausted, where His patience and endurance will be done, and He will consume this world, not in a watery flood, but in a fiery furnace, melting it to its very atomic core, the Bible tells us. In 1 Peter chapter 3. The promise to Adam of a Savior for mankind was the basis of belief for Enoch, For Noah, for Abram, for Jacob, interestingly enough, not Esau, for David, all the way until you come to John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Here is God's grace manifest. Here's how Paul wrote it to uh, to Titus, a young preacher. He says this in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for, that's what has happened if you've trusted in the grace, and here's what should happen. You should be trusting in the gracious return of Jesus Christ, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself, uh, purify unto himself a peculiar people. Do you think Noah thought himself a peculiar person? Hey man, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. It has never rained. Are you a moron? Well, God told me to do it. And so I've always trusted God and his word, and so I'm going to do that. 16 billion people telling you you're a moron and you're an idiot for listening to God, that's a lot of peer pressure. Don't come crying to me as your pastor. Pastor, you don't understand the pressure I'm under. Read this book. I know another guy that had a lot of pressure. Well, it's just not easy. No one ever said it's going to be easy, but it's right. It's high time Christians wake up to this fact that doing wrong is never right in God's eyes. 
Their belief was built upon the irrefutable fact that God demonstrated grace to Adam. That's what this lineage believed. Our response, our belief in the present day is to Christ's grace-filled death, burial, and resurrection is what saves us. So the question then before us is, do we believe that God's grace is sufficient to save us? Noah had to. Do you? Well, I'm just waiting for God to give me a real clear sign. He did. His son came, his son lived, his son died, his son was buried, and his son rose again the third day. That's all you need to know. Well, I mean, Pastor, when I know what you know about the Bible, listen, what I know about the Bible doesn't change the fact of my salvation. Have I asked Jesus Christ to save me from my sins? Period. That is the grace that has been revealed or that has appeared to me. Noah had his faith or his belief in the grace that was revealed to him. That is salvation from front to back and back to front in the Word of God. It wasn't just in the Adamic promise, but we also read in Genesis 6 that his belief was in the Almighty's providence. The lady sung a wonderful, beautiful song this morning. And in that song, there was a phrase or a statement, and I wrote it down in the first hour. God will, uh, God's will cannot lead me where His grace will not keep me. That's exactly what Noah was trusting in that fact from the Word of God. He trusted that God was providential. That means He is both powerful and protective in His care. Look in verse 22 of chapter 6. After being told he was building an ark and what it would be for and why it would be so, in the face of all of the opposition, in the face of all of the darkness, in the face of everything else, here's what the Bible says of Noah. Thus did Noah. (laughs) That's great. That's a person who believes in the grace and goodness of God. According to all that God commanded, so did he. Noah did not fully understand God's plan for the extermination and rejuvenation of the human race through him, but he trusted the plan because he trusted the person behind the plan. Listen, I don't know what tragedy you have gone through or what tragedy you will be asked to go through, what trying of your faith or what trouble you will be asked to endure. But I can tell you this, if you believe in God and it is grace, you believe that as a provident God, He has a plan and a purpose for everything He does. Even if your pastor can't tell you every reason. We can look at Noah and we can say for 120 years or so, he built an ark. And as he was building that ark, there was mock and ridicule, there was questions and doubt, there was reasons that he didn't understand. All the while that he was on the ark and all of the people that he had known, friends and family, loved ones, brothers and sisters, as they were dying under that 15 cubits depth of water over the highest peak of the earth, that water was killing everybody that he knew. And he still said, God, I don't know what your plan is or why you're doing that, but I trust you in it. That's belief. It's hard. The bigger the church gets and the more problems and people that I have to help, it grieves my heart often to see many of the depths of sorrow that people must go through. But it is always joy to Jessica and I to see those that walk through it trusting in God's plan. That's genuine belief. Do you believe in an almighty, providential God? Noah found grace against a godless backdrop in and through his genuine belief, all while experiencing, third, God's benevolence. This is grace. God's benevolence. He's good. Not just in how he acts towards me, he's good in his very character. When you're good in your character, you're always good in your conduct. God is good. What's that old song, the old hymn, The Lord is good, tell it wherever you go? That's a wonderful hymn. It is through God's grace we know His goodness and His benevolence. Noah, by the time his travel was done on that old ark, Drew and I tried to figure it out this week. 
We think we came up with 257 days, and I'm telling you, it's basically his eighth grade pre-algebra skills, not his dad's 25 or 30-year-old remembering of how to do math and, and stuff like that. I, we came up with, I think, 257 or so days that he was actually in the ark for seven, then it rained for 40, and then the waters were upon the earth for 150, and then there was a time for the waters to recede, and the birds were sent out, and the boat was landed, and when it was landed, then they could dra- step out on dry ground. I think we came up with 257. That's nearly a whole year. If you read the Bible, it looks like it was actually over a year and a couple days. And the point is, is it a Jewish calendar or a Julian calendar? It doesn't matter. Here's the point. The whole time, God protected them. He was gracious to them. He provided for them. He benefited them. It reminds me of what Moses recorded of God's words to Israel back in Numbers chapter 6. When the tabernacle was near completion... This perfectly identifies God's desires towards those who love Him, to those whom He shows His grace. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24, it begins, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make His face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up His countenance upon thee. That means His very presence. And give thee peace. And they shall put My name upon the children of Israel. And I will bless them. This is the benevolence that Noah knew. This is the benevolence of God. God's benevolence, letter A in our outline, is found in divine recognition. How does that grace become ours? If we wanted to say it this way, God's grace is like a pool. It's over here. I've heard many times the picture of the Holy Spirit, the picture of God's grace. It is over here. It's like a power that runs to your house, but your vacuum doesn't work until you plug into it. Right? You've got to plug into it to get the power out of it. You can't stand there with your vacuum doing this and not plug it in. You have to have the source providing the the electricity or the go, if you will. And the same thing is true of God's grace as we consider it here. His grace is there, and in the recognition, God saw. We find four or five times in chapters 6, 7, and 8 that God saw, God looked down, God saw, or He says, I have seen. The picture is this. God is a gracious God is always looking not to hurl a lightning bolt at us and to make our lives miserable, miserable, but he's looking to say, how can I demonstrate even more of my grace to you? That's the God we serve. That's the God we love. Let me ask you this question, because it applies to Noah. Do you ever wonder if doing right is worth it? I mean, who's watching? Who cares? I mean, if everybody else is doing what's wrong, why do I have to do what's right? You ever find yourself there? And the answer is you do like I do. (gasps) Wait, my pastor can't say that. Listen, your pastor is flesh and blood just like you. There have been many times throughout the history of the church when we've gone through struggle or or setbacks or things, uh, the growth has been slower. I'm like, Lord, am I doing the right thing? I can tell you that Jessica and I, in the first couple years of the church, we were like, I hope this makes it. So far, so good, but in the early days, I hope it makes it. Are we doing the right thing? Yes, because we have a benevolent God. He divinely recognizes those that are doing right according to His grace, who are operating and acting in His grace. Noah is the biblical example of that. The grace that he found is the example we need in our generation. His obedience was recognized by God, but understand that there are, for a hundred years or so, it probably didn't feel right to Noah. You know, the first couple days of building that ark, it wasn't that hard. Nobody could tell, like, man, that guy's got a lot of cubits set aside for some building project, right? If you go and read the actual scriptures, and we've not done it. We're not telling the story of the ark. We're telling the story of Noah through these three messages. But if you go and read the story of the ark, there was a lot of cubit links that had to be set aside for that ark to be built. So in the early days, there was like a lot of land clearing, a lot of wood that was laid up. There's a lot of preparations that are made. But once it started taking structure and the scaffolding started going up, and by the time it gets to the very top, uh, probably 75 to 85, maybe 95 years into the project, I mean, he's been at this for a long time, and he's up on the top of it looking down, and there's people walking by going, weirdo! What are you doing up there, weirdo? But God was still gracious. God was still looking down. Nobody else saw the good in what Noah was doing, but God did. That's all that matters. 
We read often that God saw or looked down in these passages. He saw the sinfulness in early chapter 6 around Noah. We find that God saw the faith of Noah in the face of that in the middle of chapter 6. We finally would read that God saw the obedience of Noah. God sees the just and the unjust. He knows your heart. He knows your thinking. He knows your reason for acting. The most rewarding verse, I think, in all of this for Noah and for us this morning is chapter 7 in verse 1. Here's what it says. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous. Oh, would to God that would be said of our homes. Well, you know, if my parents don't commend me for doing right, I'm not going to do right. Really? How much do you love God? How much do you actually understand of the grace of God? Well, you know, if my pastor doesn't catch me in that sin, nobody's caught me in that sin. No, God sees you in your sin. He also sees you in your process of sanctification, the growth that you have, the good things that you do, even if the pastor misses it. And as we get bigger, I'm going to miss more and more successes. I hate that, but that's the truth. So if you're doing it for an attaboy from me, good luck. Noah didn't. He did it from God's perspective. I am appreciative of the grace of God. I want to serve the living God, the one that loves me and will rescue me. I love him because he first loved me. And so I'm going to serve him. God's benevolence is seen in His divine recognition, but let her be, it is found in His divine restoration. The chief reason God demonstrates His grace to mankind is to restore us to His intended purpose, that we might glorify Him. Walk through these verses with me from Genesis chapter 8 and going forward. The flood is done. The waters are subsiding. I say they have, they're in the midst of subsiding. Verse 24 of the chapter before says, The waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says this, And God remembered Noah. Boy, that is grace right there. I, I kind of had this thought. Some people, when they read it, they're like, Oh, did God forget about him after all that time? Like, oh, Noah. Yeah, down there. Well, there's only eight people. I'm pretty sure he didn't forget them. That's not what it means. It means that he acted or exercised even more of his grace towards him. In other words, what he had manifested to this point, he was now going to manifest in great multitudes. He was going to make it exponential. By the way, that is the picture of salvation. In salvation, there's divine recognition from God that we have received. The grace of God has found us, and we found the grace of God. And in that salvation, there is then a process of growth, sanctification. That's the restoration. That's what's beginning to unfold in Genesis chapter 8. That which is old is passed away. Noah came in by way of the ark. The ark is an Old Testament type of the cross of Jesus Christ. There was only one way in. The door, when it was there, was shut. There's nothing that needs to be added. All they needed to do was rise along that boat until it was done. And when it's done, the door was open and out they came in the newness of life. This is what Noah experienced in the grace of God. And in this, God recognizes and restores him. The Bible says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. Boy, if I was a deep conspiracy theorist of trying to find Old Testament types and forcing them in, I would say, boy, isn't that what the Holy Spirit does in our new life? He passes over our life and he helps to contain that which was destructive before so that we can be good and gracious before God. That's the process of sanctification. Go on down to chapter 8 and verse 15. It says this, And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both the fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. This is the point my wife wishes that Mrs. Noah had stepped on every spider. She didn't. I wish that they had swatted every gnat or every mosquito and just said, Okay, no more. But they didn't. God's in control. That they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. In other words, God's process is the restoration of life. He is the God of life. He wants life to abound. He wants us in salvation to have life and to have it more abundantly, Jesus would say. Go to chapter 9 and verse 1 and we read this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and he said unto them, Just what he said about the animal kingdom. He said to the humankind, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. 
God's design that life is restored. God's loving restoration starts with the preservation of the souls, then it moves to the propagation of the species, and finally there is proof in the sky. If you kept reading in chapter 9, you would come to the rainbow. Oh, there would be a promise of God that would be set in the clouds. And what is that promise that God is gracious, that God is good? By the way, that's why the homosexual crowd so often and eagerly destroys that symbol of hope and of God's grace. But God doesn't. Light breaks into seven patterns or seven colors when it's put into a prism. And what it shows us is the complete nature of who God is in the fullness of His grace. That rainbow has a purpose. In closing this morning, God's grace found Noah. And Noah found God's grace. The life that Noah was asked to live was a much harder life than any of us have ever been asked to live. Noah had no knowledge of who Jesus Christ was or what he would do on the cross. He just had faith in the gracious promise of God that there would be a seed given and that that seed would someday crush the serpent, the deceiver's head. We can look back and say, well, that was Jesus Christ and it happened on the cross of Calvary. How much greater promises, Peter says, are given to us. In that truth, it is then even more powerful that Noah's life teaches us that no matter how difficult our circumstances, no matter how dark our surroundings become, we can still walk with God. I'm going to say this a lot through this year. You might get sick of it. I'm preaching these messages because I'm convinced darkness is closing in upon us as a church. I don't mean your life individually. I mean those of us who gather in this place and those that want to assemble and come here over the coming year or years. I believe that we are living in the end of the end times and in that there is darkness that is going to be perpetuated upon the face of the earth. Jesus warns us that that is so. And if you're not willing to walk with God this year and you're not awakened by these messages to make choices, conscious choices, to live by faith in God's grace, you're not going to be successful. And you might be, you might not be an axe murderer. <laughs> you might not be a criminal and go to jail. But you're not going to be successful in the word of God, in the work of God, or in the will of God. Noah was. The Bible says us, tells us in Genesis 6 and verse 22, Thus did Noah all that God commanded, so did he. We find that Noah found grace. That's where his walk began, in the eyes of the Lord. He did so in the face of the godless backdrop, which made him demonstrate his genuine belief, and in so doing, he saw the true benevolence of Almighty God. Would that be said of us in these dark days that we live? Father, help us as we close.